When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are here today on Crew Call with filmmaker Michael Grandage, who's behind this weekend's Amazon film, My Policeman, and why the film is extremely important to the current times we're living in. Tell me about when you got your hands on the novel and how that changed you. Let's start with that, because actually I didn't. The answer was the... Uh, my Policeman came to me first via um, the screenplay, actually, uh, because uh, the screenplay was commissioned before I came on board. Um, uh, two of the producers had bought the rights to the novel, commissioned, uh, commissioned Ron Nice wanted to do the uh, screenplay, and then they started to look for a director about two or three years after that process had begun, or a couple of years after that process had begun. So my first way into the... Um, to the story of my policeman was actually through the screenplay, which I think is probably for the best, uh, as it turns out, because somehow if I'd have gone in through the novel first, uh, I might have seen the screenplay slightly or the possibilities of the film itself slightly different in my head and actually going in through Ron's version, while I knew there was some stuff I would have, I, I wanted to, to do with it, uh, I uh, do with him on it, I, uh, I, it was a, it was the best way in. So I went to the to answer your question. Now I went to the novel after that, and uh, read the novel, um, which obviously has a very different um, uh, setup and configuration. And I thought Ron had opened the novel up rather successfully, actually. And the work I wanted to do with him was more about the trans, trans the way we transitioned from um, 1999 to 1957, and the way. Uh, some of the um, anglicization of some of the language, some of the period, introducing a slightly more period language into the 1950s, but really very, if I'm honest, very little work um, overall, because the script, when it came to me, had been already worked on quite considerably between Ron and the producers, and I thought it was in not bad shape. And, you know, everybody's written about this, and I'm just wondering, this is really true. This is based on E.M. Forrester's relationship? Well, very, very loosely. Uh, Bethan Roberts, who wrote the novel, was intrigued by that relationship that Forster had with the policeman and was uh, intrigued enough to think that she wanted to go on a much more uh, fictional journey. So I, I, the, the truth is, the best way of understanding the relationship is a relationship that she read about between Forster and the policeman uh, or the, the policeman he lived with for many years, was um, an inspiration, no more, for her to go off and write a fictional story about a man in the 50s who fell in love with the police. So Moray's, you know, this is very much about how things were taboo back in UK society 
back then. For us over here in the States who don't have this knowledge, when did things change? When did things begin to open up? Well, the law changed in six, 1967. So I was born into that world where it was still, um, where homosexu homosexuality was still illegal. Uh, it changed when I was young uh, in 1967. Uh, the law changed then, but inevitably, of course, uh, the law changed, but nothing changed overnight except the law. The prejudice uh, continued, I think it's fair to say, for at least a generation. And then I think I did start to notice something where the world opened up a bit and started to change um, uh, a little as, um, as we moved into and out of uh, the 80s and into the 90s, no question. But uh, the law in England was, uh, as it is in the film in the 1950s, but yeah, it changed in 1967 for the first time. And um, that, was, uh, that was the root, remember, of most people's prejudices. Uh, it's quite worth, it's worth just examining that for a second. I mean, people talk about, you know, people put, pe put prejudiced people into a box marked prejudice, but it's worth analysing where that prejudice comes from. I think if you're, uh, if you're of the generation who grow up where the law, the law of the land is telling you that something is illegal and therefore something is wrong with you. You sort of take that on into your DNA. And so, the, and so the prejudice that carried on long after the law changed was from the generation who just found it difficult to suddenly go from, oh, this was once supposed to be wrong, we were told, to now this is right. I mean, you, uh, I, I, give, I think what I'm saying is I give that generation a little bit of slack. I'm honest, because it's hard for them. And, you know, prejudice is a horrible thing, but it's about how you teach yourself to be unprejudiced and how you come out of that and how you discuss with yourself intellectually and emotionally how you, uh, you know, how the law changes and you must change as well in time. So it's really about, um, it's really about generation after the law changed that anything changed here. Now, with lawmakers you know over here in the u.s just on the verge of sending us back to the stone ages um you know especially after you know they they rolled back um pro-choice and things like that you know there's there's a lot of fear over here and i'm curious when you when you read the script did you fear did you did you feel like many many of the people that have seen this movie, this, this is very timely. This speaks to now. Did it just, was it, was it very loud in your ears? Well, the thing um, is, Anthony, I have to tell you that the three years that passed between uh, me first reading the script and sort of finishing the shoot and going into the edit, they've been three pretty monumental years in of themselves. And I think the world is, uh, for the first time, in my lifetime, quite fragile at the moment. The world, certainly in terms of the advances that have been made by the LGBTQ plus community over the last 20, 30 years, that's for sure. They're suddenly rather fragile. And, um, and the film unquestionably speaks to that. And it did when I read it, and it was one of the appeals of reading it, was that uh, one of the appeals of making it was that uh, we could hopefully let the film be part of a wider debate about what it's like if we let if we go back rather than forward but in a way that's become more timely since the film was completed because of the way as you say the laws 
uh, a shifting in America and making it feel quite fragile. And certainly, I have to tell you, that, uh, it's happening back here in the UK where things are being put back on agendas that we never thought. So gay marriage was put back on the agenda by the uh, Church of England for a brief moment in time, only recently, only to be taken off again. But I think it is all shifting again and shifting not in a great place. So my hope, particularly with the um, people we've got in this film, people like Harry Styles and Emma Corrin, and David Dawson, who come with a young fan base. My hope is that that young fan base will engage with this film because they're following those people. And they are, for my money, the most unprejudiced generation that have ever been born. And I would like them to become advocates for why we should keep moving forward and not backwards. So my hope is when they see the politics of this film and they see what England was like, when, you, when there was a society where you weren't allowed to be yourself, where you weren't allowed to be free to be yourself, um, they will be a quite powerful voice about, for not returning to that. That's a hope I have. And, you know, if the, if the film does nothing else but just plays a tiny role even in that debate, I will consider that to be a big gain, frankly. Well, I can tell you some something right now that I found out from a source, and I don't think Amazon even knows this themselves, but the I, box office is my thing. And the film is going to do very well this weekend in its limited run. I think it has a shot at, at a half a million at 400 theaters, which is a very healthy gross. So knock on wood, that stays on track. That's a very, very early projection at this point. Um, but um, I was thinking... Could this movie have been made in the 80s? Something makes me say yes. I think of movies like Maurice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly comes from the place of, uh, it comes, there's no question it comes from the, uh, the place of, or we, or, it's not for me to say, but our aspiration certainly to make a, a beautifully crafted movie like Maurice is. And uh, certainly there was a whole group of films, British films being made in the 80s, where design and um, the way we, uh, films were shown were, were part and parcel of something, uh, you know, the, part of the way we made films here. So I certainly I take uh, anything like that as a compliment. But remember, we are, you can only ever watch a film like this, any film through the prism of the time you watch it. And we're watching My Policeman in 2022. And I'm glad to hear that sounds from what your information, sounds from your information, that there might be quite a few people watching, which is lovely, um, this weekend even. So I, my hope is through the prism of 2022, this film will resonate in a very, very different way uh, uh, to any film that's gone before because of the way we deal with three time periods. 1957 is its own time period and very much a period piece. But remember, our present day in the film is 23 years ago uh, when the world was in a different place again to where it is in 2022. So you have a thing, you have the benefit of this film, something that you certainly don't have from a film that was made in the 80s, of being able to watch three periods of time. Now, as in right now, um, the relatively recent past and where we were with uh, uh, in terms of the uh, socio-political world then, and then right back to the 1950s. And I think in that time machine that you're invited to go on watching the film um, through that prism, you learn quite a lot more about who we are now as a society, where we, uh, where we are as a society and where we should be proud of the advances we've made, where things are frightening again, as you say, and um, you can do that in a much more specific time frame. So in that respect, um, it is 
uh, it is something that is very much of now, I guess. You know, this, this film has a beautiful patina as far as its tone and its colors and its blues and its yellows. Can you talk about that, making that choice? Yeah, the, the design and um, the way we approach the design and the color in the design with the designer, Maria Jerkovic, but also with the costume designer, Annie Simmons, there was a complete, uh, and indeed uh, Ben Davis, the cinematographer, there is a, there's a completeness to that collaborative journey that where color, we really investigated color and tone and how, it, and how we were able to take it right the way through both the periods sometimes, because there, is, there are connecting colors there um, very much in the bright and the lighter brighten of the 1950s and the slightly more muted palette that we used in the nut, well, considerably more muted palette, but actually there's a line running through both of those, a tonal, a tonal quality uh, that we took great trouble to sort of join up. Um, we wanted, it, it, it is a film that deals with memory and time specifically. And we wanted uh, we wanted echoes of their past in their present as we watched it. And that was best achieved through colour, actually. So um, uh, with the hues and tones that we used in the 50s, we looked for all sorts of places where we could subtly bring them into the 90s. And, you know, the most obvious sometimes it's obvious, you know, you, we, I make a very specific cut, for instance, from uh, the camera holds on David Dawson in a slightly mustard coloured jumper um, uh, in the 1950s. And we cut in that shot to Rupert Everett in the 1990s in, in, a, in a piece of knitwear pretty much identical in colour, um, different, different, in, different in style, but similar in colour. And um, we're making that. That's the, that's a very obvious example of a cut between the two periods using color, um, as we have done to link up the two periods. But we do it, I hope, far subtly in other cuts between the two when we go back to the fifties or for, forward from the fifties to the nineties. So yeah, color was part of the whole overall discussion about the design of the film. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Greg Berlanti, can you talk about him? Was he always attached to the project? When did he come aboard and his fingerprints? Well, it was Greg, it was Greg's partner who, when they, in fact, when they were dating, they weren't even married at the time, Robbie Rogers, who uh, first read the book, the novel. He passed it to Greg and said, read this, I think it's amazing. Greg read it and they said this would make a great film. And it was those two with their, uh, with Greg's uh, business partner, Sarah Shepard, that commissioned the screenplay. They then went um, after um, uh, a director when that screenplay was completed and that's how I came on board. But Greg then, I have to tell you as a producer and a director himself, remember, is, well, I should say because he's a director himself, probably, he understood the creative process perhaps a lot more than some producers because he's been on it himself as a director. And so his fingerprints weren't all over it. What he was rather brilliant at doing for me was leaving me to come up with a vision 
film and uh, and and then make, made sure that he was very much in touch with that vision with me in the early stages so he understood the kind of film I wanted to make. He brought in his producing partners, Robbie and Sarah, to be part of that. And it was actually a quartet of us fantastically in tune about the film that we wanted to make, all of us. Um, and they took their lead very much from the visuals I presented them. Obviously, in that quartet, I was the only English person, so I was able to present to them a vision of England um, through quite a lot of uh, research that we did here. I'm talking to you in England now, obviously. Uh, quite a lot of uh, research we did here. And uh, they got fully behind the film. And then, of course, the casting process started where you would expect them to be involved because, you know, Casting is something that you don't just do on your own. And um, the casting process, we were all talking all of the time. And then, and then uh, when we went into pre-production and the shoot, because that happened in England and they're all based in LA, we were very much left uh, to get on with it. Now, Amazon was on board very early on or did they come on board after the film was shot? No, 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 no. They came on before the film was started shooting and indeed, uh, just before we went into pre-production. They came on when we had cast, casting. Who were the first cast members attached? Well, the first, we were going to originally start, just so this gives you an inside look into the process. Originally, we thought we should probably start with the older Marion and build out from there. Because in the end, if you pressed me against the wall and said, who is the film about? I would probably have to say it's really Marion's story. Mm -hmm. But just as we were about to start that process, we got a call from Harry Styles' agent, because as you probably know, once a script is, and I'm, I'm with that agency, and once a script is circulating within an agency, you've no idea really who it's going to. And sometimes a call can come to you as it did on this occasion from Harry's team saying, we passed this script to Harry because he is looking for another movie. He really responded to the material. Could you meet him? Because he's very interested. And so we slightly put on hold the idea of going in search of an older Marion just to see what that meeting, what that meeting yielded. And I met Harry uh, in this very office I'm talking to you from now. I can't remember when. And it was a very... Uh, uh, inspiring meeting from me. You probably know this, but most of the time a director is in a room trying to convince an actor to be in a film. So it was really interesting being in a room with somebody who had read the novel at least once, I could tell, read the screenplay multiple times, and was talking intelligently about what they wanted to bring to the role of Tom. Can you tell us about that? Can you tell us about, because I think this is getting lost on some people, how, you know, this, this isn't, Harry is, uh, is now an actor. He's very, very serious about his craft. And I don't think people know how serious he is and how serious he is about his method. And um, I'm wondering if you could art articulate that. What was his angle for Tom? Well, his angle, it was twofold. One, which is for me the most important in a way, was his focus as an actor on why uh, he was looking for material that would help him develop uh, from the last film he'd made and go and move into a place where emotionally um, he could uh, start to open up um, other areas 
and, and just just develop his technique really as an actor. I think he he wanted he knew he knew he was um, inexperienced, and he has a one thing Harry Styles has is an incredible level of self knowledge, which is helpful about who he is and where he sits. And and in the respect of his development as a career as an actor, he knew he was somebody um, who wanted needed to gain experience. It was it was really about how did he get through which roles did he gain it, and he saw Tom as a rather complex, well, he saw it correctly, he saw the idea of playing a complex character of somebody who couldn't really express their emotions, somebody who was hidden behind themselves almost, somebody who had almost to emotionally shut themselves down from the people and the world they're in because he was a policeman in a society where it was illegal to be gay. So Basically, what do you do in that situation? You pull your cards very, very close to your chest and give absolutely nothing away. And so he was intrigued about playing an inner life rather than an outer life. That, that interested him. He was interested in playing something internal where, where very little was given away. In fact, so little was given away, both Marion and Patrick found it difficult to read him. That's, that's the point of the character. The only, the only other point of the character is that you, the audience, have got to believe why two people fell in love with him. So if, he's not, if they didn't fall in love with him because of his personality giving stuff out, they must have just fallen in love with him because he's incredibly beautiful and charismatic to look at. So a combination of those two factors was something <laughs> Harry understood straight away. He said, you know, the inner life of this character is so interesting because the outer life is sort of shut. That's the whole point of the, of the whole point of Tom Burgess. So in that respect, um, just hearing somebody talk like that, he, I, I've sort of expressed to you how he expressed it to me. And I thought, well, you really do get, you get him, you completely get him. And then the other part that interested him on his journey as Harry Styles wanting to be an actor was that he knew even then something that you and I've spent already quite a bit talking about, which is with his fan base, being able to connect with a story that would genuinely mean something um, uh, and connect and help people understand what it could be like if you start rolling back laws, that was also incredibly important to him. And I ought to say something that was also important to Emma Corrin when I met Emma, um, something that was important to David Dawson when I met David, it was important to all the company, that second point. The fact that they wanted to be involved in a movie that may well help be part of a bigger debate, as we've already discussed on this call. How did you prepare your actors? Like, did you have rehearsals? You know, did you, did you do a few walkthroughs before you actually shot the scene? Or was it, you know, like on some... This isn't a TV show, but on some TV show, you need to you you need to arrive prepared, hit your mark, and you're off and running. There's no time to to go into your trailer and think about things. No, it was it was uh, it was actually very specific. It was three full weeks of rehearsal, which is something I asked for as part of the production. So it was it's rare, as you probably know, to have that. And um, I was just aware with the level of experience that we had, not just from Harry, but everybody in terms of well, not everybody three younger people and where they sit and the fact that it was so incredibly important that the three young people bonded uh, and and then bonded in pairs separately to that I just knew that is not something I wanted to even risk turning up on set and then sort of having a few quiet discussions in a corner and then shooting I wanted all of those discussions all the rehearsal even the staging particularly the intimacy stuff I wanted all of it to happen in advance I wanted all of us to have really discussed in some depth about what we wanted to get from the scene, 
even backstory coming to the scene, where we're going, the motivation of where we're going within the scene. I wanted all of that. To, so we actually had a full three weeks rehearsal and it was um, a wonderful process. Emma and Harry already knew each other a bit, but um, it was a wonderful process to bond Emma, Harry and David together and indeed the older trio. Um, I, I, I rehearsed with all of them and um, uh, it, was, it was always part, when I met them, it was always part of uh, what the process would be, that we would be rehearsing in order to discover. I mean, I always, that whole thing of when people say, oh, I hope we don't, but some, some people, some actors do say, oh, I don't really like rehearsing because they think it's somehow going to take away from the spontaneity on the day. But it doesn't, of course, because there's so much thrown at you on a shoot. You have to be ready, you know, to, for absolutely anything, weather alone. Throws, throws all sorts of uh, wild cards at you. So the truth is that um, I never worry about spontaneity on the day, but you, I, 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 I think it's always good to have some kind of um, a structure. Was there a particular scene with your actors that was the most precious for you? One where you're holding your breath, like, I need to get this tone right. Um. Well, yeah, I sort of feel that with every scene, if I'm honest, because you, you tonally you want to get every scene as right as you can, because you can't, you can't, uh, once you've shot it, you can't, you know, you can't, you can shoot something again, but it's expensive. But you, you want to try and get what you, you want from every scene when you shoot it. I mean, there are some key scenes that you, you know, the bonding scenes between the three of them, when the audience are kind of invited to go on a different journey to the journey that you realise as an audience you're ending up on, so in those early stages, when the three of them are walking around the gallery together, that is kind of an important scene because you're telling multiple stories in that scene. You're sort of trying to suggest to an audience that there may be a relationship starting with Marion and Patrick. You're trying to spend, you're trying to subtly tell, not tell an audience that there is already a relationship going on between Patrick and Tom. Uh, that's to be discovered later, but if ever you were to watch the film twice, you would then watch it with that in mind. You know, there's, 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 there's multiple things going on in those early scenes between the three of them that affect the later plot. And so the balance of those scenes was always important and getting those three stories right was always important. But no, to be honest, I think you can't, I, one thing I learned, you can't really, you can't really let any scene go. <laughs> Once you had Harry, because you had Harry, did that give you liberty to cast really whoever you wanted after that and not feel the pressure of you have a star and now you can go with others as you feel and you don't have to feel the pressure of branding the film beyond? To a degree. I mean, it was always in my head. And you're right. Once you get somebody of Harry's profile, it slightly, it slightly eases it a bit. But it was always... It, Whoever was playing any part, it always was trying to be an ensemble film because of the size of the roles. No role is bigger. I mean, those six people, there's three, there's three roles and six actors playing them, and they need to be able to interact between time in a way that makes you feel, whoever's playing them, that it is an ensemble feature because that's what it needs to feel like at some level. Now, obviously, that gets slightly distorted when you have people like Harry playing one of those six roles. But the flip side of that, the good side of that, is it does free you up to make sure that you are able to get just who you want and the best actors playing all of the roles for you. And so, for instance, Gina McKee is an actor I've worked with many times before, and I knew she was would be wonderful as Marion. Rupert is somebody... I've longed to work with. And Linus is somebody I was at college with and have worked with before.
before. So the, to be, and David Dawson, somebody I've worked with multiple times before, I wanted to be able to make sure that I was able to bring on people who I knew would be right for the part and who I had a good working relationship with. And so, yes, you're right, by casting uh, Harry and Emma, I, who were the first two to be cast, it did free us up for the remaining four roles in it. What is next for you? Can you share with us what you're working Yes, I'm delighted to tell you because it's a completely conscious piece of publicity. Uh, I'm in rehearsals right now uh, with Emma Corrin. Uh, we're working on a new production of Orlando for the stage. We open uh, on the West End uh, in the last week of November and with an opening uh, on December 5th. And I've just literally come to you tonight from my first week of rehearsals in the room with them and with a cast of uh, 10 other actors. And it's been a very joyous week opening up that incredible piece of literature, nearly a hundred years old by Virginia Woolf about gender identity. I mean, it couldn't be more prescient. Um, and that's exactly what's going to be occupying my time for the rest of this year. And feature film, anything yet? Anything? Number, a, a number of features in development right now, um, but nothing um, absolutely nailed down for 23, although I hope that will shift before the year is out. Michael, thank you so much. It's a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for making it so easy. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. 